great to gather. We are turning back to the uh, book of Second Kings and uh, continuing our thinking about uh, Elisha and his work and his influence amongst the people of Israel for a number of years. And so Second Kings is about um, a third of the way into your Bible. Uh, and um, we are in chapter five this morning. And it's a great uh, account that we have uh, here. It's not a random account. Uh, sometimes people may wonder, well, what stories got chosen for the Bible and what stories didn't? Well, it wasn't uh, a man or a woman that chose these. It was God himself that chose them. And there's a specific reason that he chose these uh, particular texts that we have. And this text that we have now is the story of Naaman. If you've grown up in the church, you are maybe familiar with the story of Naaman. It is one of the great salvation stories in all of the Bible. It is one of the great stories of uh, illustrating God's work in us to draw us to himself. And so that's where we get to land this morning. Uh, I want to read, starting at verse 1, and make our way um, up to about verse 19. So you can follow along if you have your Bible open with you. Naaman, commander of the army of king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke this girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Well, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes. And he said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry, and he went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? He has actually said to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, 
If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. Uh, have you ever asked yourself how God saves a person? Have you ever worked it through in your own life how God saved you, the circumstances and the events and all the things that happened? When was the last time you actually sat down and reviewed the circumstances of God in saving you and bringing you to himself? How God moved heaven and earth, so to speak, to call you. How God awakened you. How God drew you to himself. And then how God transformed you. This is really a text of um, what we would call, if you're a theologian, a text on soteriology, a, a text on salvation. We have in this particular text a picture of how God sovereignly rules and moves to give opportunity for the gospel, which is so often proclaimed and made known by unnamed servants and insignificant servants of his, to draw people from the ends of the earth into a saving relationship with God. It is miraculous, nothing short of astounding how God saves any of us. There's a lot that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, some of it we will be able to spend a little bit of time on, others that we just mentioned in passing. And I hope that you'll go home and spend some time in this text and think about some of the things that are raised here. Some are not easy to wrap your head around. But I want to just work through this question a little bit. How does God save? This isn't a sort of how-to that we can list all of the steps, but this is a picture of some of the key ways in which God saves an individual. The first is the sovereignty of God. No one is saved apart from God sovereignly working in their life and in the circumstances of their life to get their attention. God gets after you. God gets after us in the most amazing of ways. Consider Naaman. He's the last person that you might think might turn to God. He had everything that somebody could want. He was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a man of great favor with his master. He was in high standing. He was a mighty man. He was a mighty man of valor. As we'll see, he was extraordinarily rich. And he lived in one of the most beautiful places in the Near East, in Damascus. Damascus was fed by the two rivers that he talked about, pure, clean rivers that watered uh, Damascus in such a way that it was uh, viewed on as an oasis in the middle of the desert or on the edge of the desert. It was a go-to place. One ind individual says, I don't want to go there because it's paradise on earth and I want to reserve my experience of paradise till I get to heaven. It was a beautiful place. This man had everything going for him, wealth, power, prestige, honor, reputation, and he lived in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. Probably the kind of life that many of us dream for, or at least have thought about from time to time. But how did he get that life? That's a really important question that we ask ourselves. How do I get the life that I have? Well, in Naaman's case, it was because the Lord had given victory to Syria. All that was wrapped up in where he lived, his power, his might, his riches, was because of the Lord's hand. 
because God had given victory to him as Syria went out in battle. This is the sovereignty of God. This is the hand of God working in the circumstances of Naaman's life to give him the things that he experienced. And here is a a reference to the reign and rule of God over our world and over our lives and over those who are around us. Here is reality. Many of us might not like this reality or might not even think about this reality, but Scripture bears this out again and again and again, that God is sovereign over this world. God reigns over this world. God guides and directs the affairs of this world. There is not a single individual who is outside of the guiding, sovereign rule, the providential leading of God in this world. Now, you may not think this is true. I'm sure Naaman didn't. Naaman was probably often found in the uh, courtyard of his home, looking out over the city, experiencing the warm breezes, uh, experiencing the benefits of all his wealth, thinking, my, what a good man I am. What a great leader I am. What a great warrior I am. The king is lucky to have me. I have worked hard to get all that I have. But the biblical worldview tells us otherwise again. God raises up and God sets down. God makes rich and God makes poor. God gives health and God takes away health. God numbers our days. And this is not just God's way with Christians. This is God's way with all of creation. This is what King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged when he came out of his sort of insanity and his stupor of a period of time. He said he came to his senses And he praised and honored him who lives forever, saying, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So with all this going for him, which is often the case for people who seem to have everything going for them. There's one area in their life, one thing that they just don't have power over. And for Naaman, it was his health. It says, but he had leprosy. And you say, well, where did he get leprosy from? Well, if you said God, you'd be right. Ultimately, it was God that gave him leprosy. It's God that that we read again and again and again in the Bible. God would give Gehazi the leprosy that he took away from Naaman. God gave leprosy to Moses momentarily. God gave leprosy to Miriam momentarily. God is the one that can heal us from leprosy. God is the one that can give us that disease. And so he had all these things going for him, but he was a leper. And that made him have a need. And that helped him realize that there was things in his life that he didn't have complete control over. But there's more in this verse, which is part of the describing God's sovereign work in drawing Naaman to himself. Verse 2 is, I think, a tragic verse. From a human perspective, from a divine perspective, it's an amazing verse. But in verse 2, it says, Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. That's a heartbreaking sentence in the Bible. This girl from the land of Israel had been ripped from her home, taken from her country, taken away from her parents, 
Who knows what had happened to her parents? Who knows what had happened to her family? Who knows what had happened to their village? All we know is that this young woman was taken by force from her home in Israel and dragged all the way to Damascus in Syria. To get a sense of uh, the age of this young woman, uh, we think of people that have also been described as young women using the exact same phrase, and we think of Esther. Esther was ripped out of her home in so many words and thrown into the harem of a king. Ruth was taken out of her country of Moab and became a, uh, actually part of the family of God. Rebecca was a young woman. She married um, Jacob. Dinah was a young woman. She was one of Joseph or one of Israel's daughters. And so this young woman, probably in her teens, was a servant of Naaman's wife. And we think, well, all of a sudden in our head, well, did God lose control momentarily? Did God fall asleep at the wheel while the Syrians came rushing into Israel? Had he been focused somewhere else and worried about another part of his world and he had lost sight or lost track of this particular girl and this particular family? Or was God really behind the raid of the Syrians into Israel and the abduction of this young girl? I often think of Daniel chapter 1. As it starts there, it says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem to besiege it. There is man working. There is man fighting. There is kings doing what kings do. They go out to battle. But then the very next verse is, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The only reason Nebuchadnezzar was successful was because the Lord was sovereign and gave the king into his hand. And so just as God was behind the marriage of Rebekah, the movements of Ruth, the beauty pageant that Esther won, or the abduction of Dinah, so God saw fit to move this young girl from Israel to the house of Naaman. What takes one's breath away is the attitude and demeanor of this young woman. Let's first see what the text says. It says there, she said to her mistress, would that my Lord, the language is fascinating, we won't have time, but what I want us to do or what I give you something to do during the week is go read through chapter five again and look at it through the eyes of authority. Look at all the different authority relationships that are described in this scripture and how people relate to authority. It's fascinating to me. But notice what this little girl says or this young woman says. She says to, my, to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. Wow. How does a young woman have such a faith like that? How does such a young girl not ball up into bitterness and rage and anger and hatred and hope only that her master will die of his disease? Where did her view of life and God come from? Well, I suspect it came from her family and it came from her parents. Certainly it came from God. But notice, she's from Israel. This is another strike against her. Israel was a place of apostasy. Israel was a place where they had taken the word of God and trampled on it. Israel was a place where they had taken the worship of God and replaced it for bull worship. And yet this is a young girl from Israel who knows God, who knows the word of God, who knows the prophet of God, and who knows the power of God. 
She was a young woman who trusted God. She was a young woman who accepted the sovereign work of God in her life and the fact that God would move her from Israel uh, in, from freedom into the home of uh, this uh, Sumerian uh, and be in a home there where she served him. And don't fail to miss this point, that she became one who had beautiful feet. She became one through whom the good news was given to Naaman. It's just staggering the way that the sovereign God works in order to bring an individual to faith. He gives him victory and he gives him success in a raid to bring a little girl into his home who will tell him about God. The contrasts in this verse are amazing, these two verses. Naaman, we know him. We know his name. This young girl, we don't know her name. Naaman was impressive. He was powerful. He was mighty. This young woman was insignificant. That's what little means. It means insignificant. Compared to Naaman, she was just like a, a puff of smoke. Naaman was free, but he was a captive. She was captive, but she was free. Naaman was blind to God. She was, had her eyes open to God. The, the contrasts are fascinating in this particular text. Oh, the mysterious, sovereign ways of God as he works to bring us to himself. The second thing that we see is how God draws Naaman to himself. It's incredible, the ways of God in, in, in moving us towards him without ever sort of offending our ability to choose and make decisions. There certainly wouldn't be any human obstacles for Naaman to overcome to get an, ops, uh, uh, an audience with the prophet. None whatsoever. Naaman, uh, he, he would have the blessing of his king who said, go, I want you to go. This little girl says, uh, he, he will cure you, you go. He would have the abundance of his personal riches, all of which would impress or grease the skids of the prophet and kind of bribe him or get him to work on his behalf as many prophets of those days and priests of those days would have done. He took 750 pounds of silver, 125 pounds of gold. 10 exquisitely embroidered garments these would have been. This is, this is no chump change. This is a fortune. Nothing would stand in his way of getting what he wanted. Talk about an ability to jump the queue. Talk about having a trump card in his pocket where he could whip out a letter from the king and say, I need an audience with you. This is the equivalent of calling in the big guns. We've seen this work in the world around us, haven't we? We've seen those with power and money and influence get access to people you and I will never dream of getting access to. And so here's Naaman, not a single human obstacle standing in his way of getting an audience with the prophet. Certainly Naaman had no clue, though, that his ultimate audience was to be with God, with the living God, the God of all the earth. And certainly, Naaman had no clue that his power, his wealth, his influence carried no weight before God. This is really humbling for a lot of people. They're really bothered by the fact that they can't do anything, they can't buy anything, they have no part in getting an audience with God. God is not a man that he can be bought. God is not a man that he can be threatened or intimidated. God is not a man that he can be impressed by another person's stuff. God is not a man that he can be easily manipulated. 
But if God wants an audience with you, he will get an audience with you. I'm sure that there are maybe some that are in this room today that are in a similar position to Naaman, or maybe some that are watching on the live stream. You think that it was you that decided to turn on your TV. It was you that decided to get in the car and get here today. And you may have turned on the TV and you may have got in your car, but God wants an audience with you today. It's God that has drawn you here. It is God that has sat you down in your chair to watch on this YouTube today. You're here or you are watching because God wants you here or because God wants you watching. A man or a woman's heart plans their way, but the Lord determines their steps. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? So God is drawing Naaman to himself. Naaman thinks he's taking all the steps, but God is drawing him to himself. It's amazing how God now begins to move Naaman from darkness to light. It's incredible, the light of God. And again, what I want you to do is when you go home today, think about your salvation. Think about God, how he brought you to himself, how he sovereignly worked in your life, how he drew you, maybe even without you um, knowing it, how he drew you to himself. And now we see how God begins to turn on the light in Nathan's life. It's fascinating to me that he comes to the king of Israel and the king of Israel is caught off guard by, Nathan's, by Naaman's request. The king of Syria's letter throws him into a tizzy. Here again is power and authority. The, the king of Israel just assumed, or the king of Syria just assumed that the king of Israel controlled the prophets. And so this is authority again. And he says, well, you just tell your prophet what to do and he'll do it. Little do people know we don't tell prophets what to do. Certainly prophets of God. And by extension, we don't tell God what to do. So he gets this letter. But we realize that the king of Israel has a knowledge of a God, but no knowledge of the God. Staggering. Or he surmises that if there were such a God that could do such a thing, that God would have power over life and death. But he has no knowledge of him and he has no access to him. Moreover, he makes it an issue about him. He doesn't even think about God. He says, I can't heal him. I can't cure his leprosy. He's just wanting to cause a fight with me. All he wants to do is have a reason to invade and have another war with me. And in fact, you go to chapter six and you see that that very thing happens. So this isn't, a, this isn't just a silly notion that the king of Israel has. He's quite concerned that the king of Syria might be trying to create a reason for fighting. But how is it, how is it that the king of Israel has all the covenant blessings, all the promises of the word of God, a prophet in his midst, and yet he knows nothing of God? He knows nothing of Israel's God. It reminds me of that song by Pink Floyd. The king has become comfortably numb. In the midst of all the privileges of God, he's numb towards God. Doesn't that make the faith of this young girl stand out even more? She knew about the power of God. She knew about the prophet of God. She knew about the word of God. This insignificant, unnamed young woman 
knew that God was the God of all the earth, knew that God was able to cure leprosy, knew that God's word was powerful. And while the king of Israel had light, he dwelt in darkness. But God is moving Nahum from darkness into light. It's Elisha who approaches the king. Elisha hears that the king has gone crazy and he's ripped his clothes again. It's Elijah that goes to him and speaks to him. He says, let him come to me, that he may know that there's a prophet in Israel. This is nothing less than an invitation of God. This is God saying, let Naaman come to me. Let Naaman come out of his darkness into the marvelous light of the sovereign God of all the earth. Naaman, you're not coming to some magician. You're not coming to some spiritual uh, priest who you can buy off with all your wealth and your influence and intimidate into doing whatever you want or casting some magic spell or throwing some pixie dust on you and somehow you'll be uh, 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 cured, possibly, this sham prophet that you might be seeking in your own land. No, you are coming to the living God. What an amazing work of grace we see here as God continues to just almost on a string draw Nathan or Naaman to himself. And then we begin to see God breaking down all the barriers that Naaman had towards him. Engage your imagination just for a moment. I think it's in verse 9 where it says, So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the house of Elisha. That is intimidation at its strongest. Elisha probably lived in some little one-bedroom home. Um, it says that he has a house a little bit later. And here, outside of his door, stood this mighty man of valor with all his wealth and power exhibited around him. Here I am, Elijah. Be impressed. Be intimidated. I know how your types play this game. And Elijah sent a messenger. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. I mean, it, there, there's a spiritual reality behind that as well. And Elisha is obeying God. And there's a reason why Elijah didn't go out. But the first barrier to peace was Naaman needed to know who is the giver of peace. Elisha could not cure his leprosy. You know that, right? Elijah didn't have power to cure him. It was the God of Elijah that had the power to cure him. And so Elijah had to get out of the way so Naaman didn't misunderstand that it was a man who had cured him and not the living God. And so Elisha sends out his servant. I just, I can imagine Naaman. What? A servant? You arrogant so-and-so. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I can do for you? Don't you know what I can do to you? Naaman needed to realize that he had to make peace with God, not with Elisha. It's the same attitude that Daniel had when he was before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and none of his uh, wise men or sorcerers could interpret the dream. Finally, Daniel is given the interpretation of the dream by God. And when Daniel goes to the king, he doesn't say, great king, I figured this out. This is what he says. He says, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer 
can show the king the mystery the king has asked. Daniel did what Elisha is doing. He's making it clear to Naaman that he has no power in himself. But Daniel continues, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And Elisha is saying, but there is a God in heaven who can cure you of your leprosy. The second, and I think this is probably the most significant verse, at least as I've been working through this text, is verse 10. Something happens in this verse. And you see what God is doing. The servant says to Naaman, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be made clean. You think, what? He says, yeah, you will be cured of leprosy, but you will be cleansed of your sin. See, God was drawing Naaman not only to heal him physically, but to make him new spiritually. The first one we're expecting. We're expecting that God is going to heal Naaman. That's what the little girl said. There's a prophet who can cure you of your leprosy. It's a fascinating word, cure, too. It's not the word for healing that you find in the New Testament when you look at the Greek word. But he says, yeah, yeah, your flesh will be restored. You will be cured of your leprosy. But God realized that Naaman had a far worse disease, and that was a disease of sin in his heart. And the servant, through Elisha, by God, is exposing the greater need of Naaman. But I suspect it is this, which was like pouring gas on the flame of Naaman's already white-hot anger that ticked him off. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to tell someone after a conversation, but you're a sinner. You don't say it with that, but you just say, you know, you're a sinner, and they just explode. What do you mean I'm a sinner? I'm a good person. I've gone to church all my life. I was raised in a Christian home. It's offensive. And so I think this was like pouring gas on his already hot anger that Elisha sent a servant out. And you see, leprosy in the Bible is an illustration for sin. Leprosy in the Bible is a metaphor for sin. If you have time today or through this week, just go and do a little bit of reading about leprosy. It's an ancient disease. It is still in our world today. Uh, it's a it's a it's one of the worst things you can get in the world. One of the things that comes with leprosy is it's tremendously disfiguring. It often starts in the face. Uh, spongy growths and tumorous growths grow, and sometimes people with leprosy are, are called, said to have a lion's face. But if you have leprosy for some period of time, your hands begin to disappear, your feet begin to disappear. Because leprosy is an anesthetic disease. In other words, you have no feeling when you have leprosy. And so you can drop something in the fire and you can reach your hand in the fire and grab it and not know that your hand is on fire. You can walk over glass and not know that you're barefooted and not feel a thing, and yet your feet are being chewed up by the glass. So it's a tremendously disfiguring disease. 
It's a tremendously painful disease. It is socially and relationally debilitating. And so if you want to illustrate the ugliness of sin, if you want to illustrate the disfiguring effects of sin, if you want to illustrate the relational destruction of sin, if you want to illustrate the pain of sin, if you want to illustrate the horror of sin, then just swap out the word leprosy for any one of the biblical words of sin. And you have a picture of leprosy. In Israel, the person afflicted with an infectious skin disease is to have his clothes torn and his hair hanging loose, and he must cover his mouth, and he must run around, or he must cry out again and again, unclean, unclean. It seems very soon we'll have another metaphor for sin, COVID. The way people are treating those who have COVID, the way way people are afraid of COVID, the shame people have when they catch COVID. But you see what the text is leading us to, loved ones? It's leading us to realize that our greatest need is not a physical need. It is leading us to realize that our greatest need is a spiritual need. God so loved Naaman that he was going to extraordinary lengths to bring about his cleansing third barrier, after who can give peace and needing his eyes opened and the extent of his need, is to deal with his deceptive self-talk. Notice what Naaman, in verse 11, how the writer puts it, Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought. Some texts would say, "Behold, behold, he said to himself. We talk about this a lot, and it's, it's, self-talk is dangerous. And you really need to spend time listening to how you talk to yourself and what you say to yourself. Because self-talk can get us into a world of trouble. And here you see Naaman all of a sudden speaking all these things. I thought he would surely come out to me and stand up and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and Cure the leopard. Are not there two rivers in Damascus that are better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? He's talking himself out of salvation. He's saying, no, it's not God's way. It's my way. No, I know better than God knows. No, I know what I need more than God knows what I need. No, I need to do it my way, not God's way. God is not a narrow God. God is a smart God. God is a God who has provided the way of salvation and the only way of salvation. We come to the Father only through Jesus Christ. Naaman couldn't come to God on his terms. He had to come to God on God's terms. And if you're seeking God today, this is one of the things that you need to begin to say to yourself. You need to say to yourself, well, this is not how I thought it would be, but I'm going to trust God. I'm going I'm to accept that God tells me to come to him as I am. I'm going I'm to think through this fact that I have nothing that I really could give to God, because what do I have that I could give to the God of the universe? After all, I start so many things and I give up on them. I think that I'm good and I'm good most of the time and then I do something bad and I realize I'm not as good as I thought I was. Can't get there on the shirt tails of my mother or my father. So what do I have to lose? 
What if God is right? I will take him up on his gracious invitation to come. I will look to Jesus and I'll be saved. That's how you need to talk yourself. Talk truth to yourself. The fourth barrier to peace with God is our pride. This is often the result of our self-talk, but Naaman was full of himself, wasn't he? He wanted, to, he wanted his contribution to count. He wanted his reputation to be left intact. He wanted to be cured because of his greatness and his influence and his power and his money. One individual will wash in the Jordan and be cured of your leprosy. What a preposterous idea. I can't think of anything more ridiculous. Well, maybe one thing is more ridiculous. The idea of putting your trust and faith in a man executed on a cross almost 2,100 years ago can give you a renewed life now, forgiveness from sin, resurrection from the dead, and eternal life. Now that takes it all. Doesn't that squash your pride? <laughs> so Naaman turned away in rage. Oh, if, if you're troubled by what God is asking you to do, think twice before you turn away in rage. Stop and just think a little bit more. Hesitate before you turn away in rage. Aren't you glad, though, this isn't the end of the story? For Naaman? For you? For me? It would seem that all these barriers were impregnable. It would seem, if we were honest, that none of us would ever make it to Christ and be cleansed. Oh, but for unnamed servants. And here you see them again. His servants come to him. Notice verse 13. But his servants came near and said to him, I hope that we are like these servants, gentle, compassionate, loving, willing to risk to speak truth once again. He was, he was in a white-hot rage, and it says, but they came near to him. With gentleness, they said, my father, a term of respect and endearment. There was a reasonableness to what they said to them as they, as they almost pleaded with Naaman to come to his senses. And they said, is this, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Wash and be clean. In other words, Naaman, come on, listen. Did you hear what he said? If you will wash, if you will let go of your pride, if you will give up your riches, if you just simply do what he says... He will be clean. Wow, Naaman, think this through. Will you be free from your burden of sin? <laughs> There's power in the Jordan, power in the Jordan. No, that's not how it goes. Power in the blood. This is a great word, though. This is his servants, his unnamed servants, saying, Nathan, or Naaman, remember, this is why we've come here. We, we've come all this way. Don't blow it now. Don't squander this opportunity. What have you got to lose? Dip seven times, wash, and be clean. He goes down, dips himself in the river. Seventh time he comes up. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's Naaman's. It's like Jesus. He speaks to us. Come to me all who are weary, laden, and I will give you rest. 
What do you have to lose? Come to Jesus today, and he will give you rest. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. Just come. Just come to Christ today. I didn't do point six, so I won't do point six today. I'll pick it up next week. We'll end with point five. So we've been looking at how does God save? So what does salvation look like then? Do we see it in Naaman's life? What does the transformation of a heart look like? Because I've been telling you that Naaman wasn't only cleansed physically. He was healed spiritually. And so you say, how do you know that, Paul? Well, I am convinced that there was two miracles at that one river that day. And I'm convinced for these reasons, his confession. His eyes were opened out of the heart, a mouth speaks. And what does he say? I know there is no God in the whole world except Israel. See, Naaman had come to Elisha an idolater. He had come thinking there were gods everywhere. There, he worshipped idols all over the place. He had no knowledge of the God of heaven and earth. And all of a sudden now he confesses, I know there, I know, I know. There's no God in the whole world except in Israel. Something had changed in him. His eyes had been open. He came to understand that God is real. And that what? Changes everything. He had experienced the power of God. He was a recipient of the mercy and grace of God. And his conclusion was, this God, this God of Israel, this God of this young servant girl is the real deal. This God is the only God. The second thing that demonstrates to me that he was a changed, transformed man is thanksgiving. Are you thankful that you're a child of God? Do you sometimes just sit back and marvel at the fact that God has saved you? Does your heart overthrow, overflow with thanksgiving when you consider that God has saved you? Please accept my gift, Naaman says. Now it's no longer a bribe. Now it's no longer a threat. Now it's no longer a, 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 a hope to buy the good work of the prophet, but now it's a gift. See, gratitude comes from a changed heart. He's now responding to God's favor, not trying to buy God's favor. This is one of the most significant responses to salvation is thanksgiving. The third is his attitude. You say, well, what do you mean his attitude? Well, Five times in just a few verses from verses 15, I think it's to verse 18, he refers to himself in relationship to Elisha as your servant. This is staggering. His loyalties have shifted. He'd recognize what the kings of Israel did not, that Elijah spoke for God. See, it was not a, a word of Elisha that had power in itself, but rather it was the God that was behind the word of Elisha that had power. To obey the word of Elisha was to obey the word of God. To serve Elisha was to serve the God of all the earth. He got that. He figured that out. I was reading a couple days ago, Matthew chapter 8, and the story of the centurion who 
came to Jesus, found Jesus, and said, Jesus, you got to come to my house. Or, or no, he says, Jesus, my, my servant is ill. Will you heal him? And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll come to your house. He says, no, you don't need to come to my house. Just speak the word, and he'll be better. He says, I've got all these servants that do my bidding. I tell them what to do, they do it. No questions asked. You see, what, what he was saying is, I know the authority and the power behind word. And so when I speak the word, my servants know that behind me a centurion is the power of Rome, is the power of Caesar. And he says, I recognize that you, Jesus, that behind your word is the word of God, is the power of God. You speak that word and my servant will be well. And so Naaman realized here that to call Elisha his to be a servant of Elisha was to be a servant of God. Fourthly, worship. No longer would he worship any other God but Yahweh. This is a sign of a transformed heart. This is, a, this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is a personal God of Israel. This is a Gentile who is now calling the God of Israel his God by calling him Yahweh. You might have noticed that when he was in a rage in verse 11, he was telling himself, speaking to himself, he says, Willie, he, I thought he would surely come out, stand and call on the name of Yahweh, his God. But now here he says, I will not offer sacrifice or burnt offering to any other God but Yahweh. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Yahweh is my God. Your God is my God. It's like Ruth who said to Naomi, your God will be my God. He's become transformed. This is like you and I being able to call God Father. Abba. Give me some soil so that I can take it home and make a statement that there is only one God and when I worship and offer sacrifices, I will worship on the soil as though I am worshiping God with you. And then the final one is an awakened conscience. I don't know if you've ever found that, that... Before you became a Christian, not a whole lot bothered you. <laughs> then you become a Christian and everything bothers you. Or a lot of things bother you. Or you realize that you find yourself in some sticky situations. So now he has a dilemma. That's what salvation does for us. That's what the transformation does for us. It reminds us now that we belong to another. Things that were not a concern to him before are now a concern. And Na Naaman identifies one. He says, I'm the king's right-hand man. I help the king when he worships his god, Rimen. I have to go in with him. I have to bow there as he bows. I'm not bowing inwardly. I may be bowing outwardly, but I'm, what do I do? He says, will you pardon your servant when I do that? I think that's an extraordinary thing because it's saying that he gets it. It's saying that he's aware of a conflict. It's saying that his conscience has come alive. You know that we're not made perfect the moment we become saved, are we? I suspect that some of you sinned this week. <laughs> I suspect that some of you were put in situations where you felt like what you did was a compromise. We're on a path to perfection. It doesn't mean that we are content with contradictions. It doesn't mean that we are happy to be in those positions where we don't really know what to do or we feel like we're compromised. That's not what the text is saying. We just don't stay there. 
We look for ways to extricate ourselves or to change the situation. These are all evidences then, loved ones, of the transforming work of a saving God. Confession, thanksgiving, a new attitude, worship, and awakened conscience. And so Elisha says to him, go in peace. I love that phrase, go in peace. I've got no issue with you, Naaman. God's at work in you, I see it. He'll help you figure out what you need to do in order to serve your king. He was convinced that God had begun a work in Naaman's heart and he would perfect it. I was reading in a commentary, and I end with this. Fascinating, uh, Dale, Ralph, Dale Ralph Davis notes. He says, talking about this sort of change when we become Christian, he says, it's like the little lad near Sandfields, Dr. Lloyd-Jones's first pastorate who told his teacher about the dinner his family had enjoyed one noon. Gravy, potatoes, meat, cabbage, even rice pudding. Then he explained it all. My father has been converted. What he had spent on Friday night to booze himself silly, he now brought home to feed his family. Or there was the domestic servant who wanted to join the Metropolitan Tabernacle and Spurgeon was quizzing her about her faith. When he pressed her for evidence that Christ had changed her, she blushed and admitted, well, I sweep under the mats now. In one case, Davis comments, it may be cabbage or rice pudding. In another, a broom under mats. But God's transforming work leaves a trace in its wake. Aren't we so thankful? Father, we come before you today. And thank you for this glimpse on how you save. These may be the big rocks, and it, it will surely look different in all of our lives. But your work of salvation is really quite amazing. I am just amazed at it. As I think about it in my own life and have been reviewing it in my own life, the unnamed people that you used to bring me back onto the path of salvation. The word of God which so gripped me. The humbling that needed to take place. The awakened conscience. The desire to worship the one true God. Thank you for that work. Lord, would many here rejoice in that transforming work in their lives. And Father, for others, bring them into your family today, I pray. May they be obedient to you and say, I trust Jesus today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.